0: Two and a half admins, episode 58. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, just a quick plug for the EuroBSDCon 2021 videos that are now available.
1: So the conference was weekend before last, but the videos are up on YouTube now in case you missed it, because I know I missed most of it because it was held in Europe, and so I was asleep for most of it.
0: And your blog post plug is when to use slog and when not to.
2: Real short post. If you got sync rights, use a slog. Don't have sync rights? I use a slog. Yep, goes into a bit more detail to try to explain what
1: rights would be. Think in case you don't know, but it's that's the answer. Right. Well, links in the show notes
0: as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one, it's kind of not really news because this is a five-year-old flaw in Exchange that has just
2: surfaced again, seemingly. Technically, not even exactly Exchange. It's in the AutoDiscover protocol that Exchange uses. Although we're still talking about a Microsoft-authored protocol. Autodiscover is what enables you to just put in nothing more than your email address and password and have your email account automatically get set up without having to specify IMAP4 or POP3 or server names or anything else. Just have it all work. What's supposed to happen is you either get that information from a, uh, is it a JSON file or an XML file, Alan? XML. Yeah, an XML file that's hosted either at autodiscover.emaildomain.com or at your email domain.com slash autodiscover. The problem is that there is a back-off feature that will attempt to go a little bit further up the chain if it can't actually get the answers that it's looking for at either of those two places. So at that point, if your domain had been domain.com, the next thing it will just try is autodiscover.com.
1: Yeah, so this is mostly based on... A lot of domains used non-real TLDs, like your domain at the company. Back in the NT four days, domains weren't qualified. It was just the name, like the workgroup name. So it was usually just company or whatever. And so when they transitioned to Active Directory, that often resulted in everything being .dot lan or .dot company name or whatever. So then Microsoft's thing says, "Oh, maybe it's like that." So it tries autodiscover .dot TLD, but Obviously, if your TLD is like .ca or .de or .br or whatever country TLD you have, then it's going to go to some random website. It sends an HTTP request with your username and password in HTTP basic authentication. So it's base64 encoded to deal with special characters, but not actually encrypted. Like I think it tries HTTPS first and falls back to HTTP, but it will go to some random website and send your username and password for your email address to try to find out where the email server is.
2: And so the fun thing is, the researchers that most recently posted about this, they went and bought quite a lot of domains that were, you know, autodiscover.randomtld, uh, uh, .co.br you know, for Brazil was one of them. But they they registered, uh, I think it was like 20, 25 of these things. And the requests with valid email accounts and passwords just immediately began rolling in as soon as they attached a web server to it.
1: Yeah, and they have like
2: an 11-line PHP script that just decodes it and logs your username and password. Which, to be clear, you don't even actually need the PHP script because the way HTTP Basic Authic works, the Base64 encoded string with your credentials, it's in the Apache server log. All you really have to do is answer requests. That's pretty much it. Now, to be fair, a lot of clients will start out with, they'll start out attempting an auth scheme that's a little bit better than HTTP basic. Your authentication is not necessarily always HTTP basic, but the problem is that the vast majority of them, if their initial attempt to authenticate with the NTLM scheme, or I think CRAM MD5 is still an option, if those fail, then it will default to HTTP basic. And in, in fact, and this is where the uh, you know the very small PHP script that Alan referred to came in, your server can actually say, hey, I don't want that. Give me HTTP basic. (laughs) The client will then give it just what it asked for and tell it your username and password. So you've now told, you know, some random jackhole that bought a domain that had auto discover in the name what your email username and password are. Yay. Which generally
1: uh, is going to tell them what your email address is. And now they can, you know, probably guess where the email server actually is. And now they can read all your email.
2: Yeah, they don't necessarily really need to guess. I mean, your email account, the the actual email address is part of that Base64 string. That single Base64 string is both your email address and the password associated with it. So basically, as long as they can properly resolve the auto-discover for your domain, then... They can just use that information and, you know, poof, they're all up in your stuff. Now, the the other to some degree mitigating factor is something actually has to go wrong before your client will go reaching out, you know, to an upper level auto-discover domain. For that to happen, it has to fail to actually reach or get a valid response, you know, from the proper auto-discover from your domain. But again, the fact that these researchers... I mean, they they got thousands of passwords in a month with relatively low-hanging fruit domains. Like, they didn't have actual autodiscover.com.
1: We talked about how this is a built-in feature of Outlook, but it's also the default in the Android and iOS apps for email. And if you are typing your username and password into your phone, what are the chances you maybe make a typo in the domain name? And that domain name obviously doesn't exist because it's some real one with one letter off. And now you fall back to going to autodiscover.com or whatever, and boom, you just give your username and password away. If they can solve the typo, now they have your username and password.
2: For that matter, if you're on mobile, how excellent are the odds that you've got a dodgy connection at that particular moment, and therefore you have a transient failure to reach, you know, the, the proper autodiscover for your domain. And so then it escalates one up and, you know, Now your your Wi-Fi or your LTE connection decides that, uh, oh, I'm going to work now, (laughs) so off go your creds. It's good stuff. So there's not really an easy way to fix this then? No, there's not. There are several strategies that network administrators can use to somewhat mitigate the problem, but basically everybody's waiting for all of the various vendors to patch this. Because unfortunately... Like Alan mentioned before, this is not just an Outlook problem. In fact, I, I think we're still not entirely sure which versions of Outlook do the escalation. As I recall, it's not all of them, but it's not just Outlook. It's not just mail.app. And You know, on Android, you can't even really just facilely say like, "Oh, the default Mail app on Android," because it's that's going to be different depending on who made your Android device.
1: Hopefully, the researchers have a GitHub repo with a list of all the domains that you probably want to block. There's 9,100 of them on the list so far. (laughs) And you could implement that at your corporate DNS level or as a host file entry or whatever, and at least try to uh, stop this from accidentally leaking your stuff.
2: Or if you're a real jerk and you got your Wi-Fi pineapple, you know, out and about in the world you could block all of the auto-discover except for the one that you own and wait for people to escalate up to it. Yeah, like use that as a list of all the ones you're going to listen on on your pineapple. <laughs> I don't know
1: how many people are actually trying to log into a an email address that contains something at accident arrow. <laughs> what? Some of these TLDs have... Whole second levels like we're all familiar with .co.uk and so on, but the, the aerospace one has like .engineer.ero .engine.ero .educator.ero, and they've enumerated all of them, and that's why the list is uh, nine thousand entries long.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com/25a and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support, offered 24 7 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Jim, you wrote about
2: ButterFS recently, and it pissed quite a lot of people off. Well, of course it did. Anytime that you dare discuss the Emperor's new wardrobe, Imperial fans get kind of upset about it.
0: Well, I did see some chatter in a public channel that someone said, Jim and ButterFS, I bet I can guess how that goes before I even read it. And someone replied, yeah, getting a bit tired of hearing the Jim and Alan bitch about ButterFS show.
2: Well, you know, I'd complain about it a lot less if when I said fairly simple straight to the point things like it's fine as a single disk file system, but, you know, it starts getting problematic when you get into multiple disks or, you know, more of the advanced features. I get descended on by Butterfans anytime I say anything vaguely like that. And the kind of the only way to deal with it is like, all right, well, now we're going to, we're going to do a 3200 word article and we're going to post console snippets and we're going to show you exactly what happens when we do the things. And these are what I'm complaining about.
0: I think we need to emphasize that single disk Situation a little bit more because you don't have a problem with that, right? Like it functions perfectly well and gives you next generation features and also is built into the Linux kernel. So you're not going to have the problems of ZFS not mounting properly after a kernel update or something like that.
2: I think it's a little strong to say I'm perfectly happy with Butter, you know, even as a single disk file system. But yeah, I, I'm not going to tell you that, oh, you're going to lose your data if you put Butter on like a laptop disk. That's not really something that you have to worry about. The management interface with Butter is a screaming chocolate mess no matter what. But you know, as far as being risky with you might lose data, no, that's not something that you really need to worry about on a single disk. The real problems crop up when you get into the multiple disk management there are also some problems with snapshot management, whether you're on single disk or multi disk, which I have not yet gotten into. That'll be the next article in the series. It's not a data loss risk. It's just, a, oh, God, this is a nightmare to try to deal with kind of a thing.
1: The one I see is, is people in the comments are like, you know, does ZFS support using random differently sized disks? It's like, well, to a point, but, you know, it doesn't do the same thing Butterfest does, but it also needs to work. ButterFS might let you combine a bunch of random different disks, but then it tells you your file system will hold this much, and actually it won't. Was that in the article or was that later?
2: No, Alan, that wasn't the article. That was, a, that was a random tweet reply. And it's just kind of one of those random things. Like this this wasn't one of the, this part might lose your data thing. It's more of just yet another example of something that really did not get thought out and implemented properly in Butter. And You know, here we are, it's like 12 or 13 years old, and it's still not bright enough to report correct data to the system utilities like DF. Now, anytime you get into a complex storage stack like Butter or ZFS, there's going to be some confusion moving data back and forth between it and, you know, simpler, older utilities like DF, which tells you your, your free space on disk. But Butter just flat out tells the utility, wrong things. It's not confusing because there's a lot going on, like, you know, multiple sub volumes with different quotas or whatever. But, um, the short version is if you create a butter raid 10 with four drives, let's say two, four terabyte drives and two, eight terabyte drives, you create a single butter raid 10 on that array. It's going to do the same thing that MD raid 10 would. It's going to truncate those two eight terabyte disks down to four terabytes each. And you're only going to have eight terabytes total usable space. Now this isn't really the complaint that's just kind of how a, you know, traditional conventional RAID 10 works. You're looking for, you know, an even stripe size that goes across all members so they all have to be the same size. The issue here is that it reports to DF that that's not an 8 terabyte array that it's a 12 terabyte array, which it is not. You cannot put 12 terabytes on that array.
0: Parity RAID requires unusually careful maintenance, you said to Jim.
2: Yes, it absolutely does. You're familiar with FreeBSD Geom RAID, right? Yep. And you're familiar with probably several different manufacturers of hardware RAID controller, right? Yes. Okay. So let's say that you have a transient drive failure in a system. Could be a wiggly cable, you know, whatever. But you've got a drive that drops off the bus. And it has now departed your array for the time being. You reboot the system. And the drive is now available again after the reboot. Would you agree that that's a very common scenario? Yeah, happens rather a lot. So in FreeBSD Geom RAID or any of the hardware RAID controllers that you're familiar with, what would that look like in terms of how the RAID system manages that event? Basically, they generally have some kind of dirty
1: map to know, hey, that drive's behind. It doesn't have all of the data. We can't, you can't read from that one because it might have missing changes. And sometimes it's smart enough to be able to just catch it up. Oftentimes it's not, and it means you have to resilver the whole disk. But
2: either way, it knows that that one is not up to date. Right. Linux kernel RAID is smart enough to repair the disk, but it's a little bit pessimistic. So just because the disk shows back up after a reboot, it won't automatically add it back into the array. You have to manually add it back into the array but at that point, it's the same situation again where the disk is automatically resilvered, rebuilt, you know, scanned and repaired, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's brought back up to sync with the rest of the array. Now, Butter raid, on the other hand, if you have a disk go missing in a butter raid in a transient sense, and then you reboot the system and that drive is now available again, butter just mounts the array. It does not catch the disk back up. It doesn't do anything special, it just sticks it right back in the array and everything still appears to work for the time being. But what happens then, even if you've actually manually triggered a butter scrub, what happens then if you lose another disc, not the one that you lost, you know, transient before the whole array becomes unmountable because it turns out that all the data was not correct on that drive. And in my testing, even with a very, very brief transient outage that literally no disk activity other than touching a single file happens, you can't even mount the array. Now, in some cases, you may very well be able to mount it. Like if you've got more than two disks and, you know, you set something up like... uh Dash RAID one c uh, three to you know, to make sure that you've got three copies of your metadata, not just two. It may be possible to mount it, but you're still going to be missing an indeterminate amount of data because one of your disks is out of sync with the rest. Butter will never actually catch that for you, and even a scrub doesn't fix it. Now, with that said, as long as you've got all of your disks available, once your transient comes back in, and as long as you know that you had a transient failure, you can run butter balance. And when you run butter balance, that will jockey blocks all around all the various drives. And as kind of a side effect of that, it will fix any of these issues you had where, you know, some of your metadata was not stored redundantly or some of your data was not properly stored redundantly. But there's never anything like guiding you into this. You have to have caught the transient failure when it happened know that you did need to do this manual procedure and you need to know what manual procedure to do and it's by no means intuitive
0: and so to be clear we're not saying here that you need zfs to avoid these issues any basic
1: raid will do right yes like there's a reason why a synology uses real raid and then butterfs on top to get some of the butterfs features it just seems butterfs only works with one disk. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And, you know, Synology is an awfully big name. So let's just go ahead and you know throw that out there explicitly. All you folks out there with Synology NAS devices that use Butter, you're okay. We're not telling you you're going to lose data. You're not. Synology, it's not a dumb company. They knew what the pitfalls were, and they specifically built a system that worked around those pitfalls. They don't use Butter Raid. Butter doesn't know it has multiple disks. So that means that Butter isn't the component that's doing the data healing for you, but Synology has actually got their own set of kernel patches that uh, ties together DM raids. uh, I'm not sure if it's the actual DM integrity target, but basically it ties together the conventional DM raid and the butter layer on top so that you can detect a checksum error at the butter layer and then go back and reconstruct the block that had the checksum error from the raid layer and make sure that that matches. And if that matches, then you fix everything and you're good to go. It's frankly, in my opinion, kind of clunky compared to just a proper ZFS setup, but it's fine. It's not going to eat your data. I have no actual complaints about it. But Facebook, Jim, Facebook. Facebook uses it on web servers. They use it on web servers that are literally device level redundant. You know what you do with a web server that breaks at Facebook? Facebook. You pull the damn thing out of the rack and put another one in there. You don't really care what went wrong with it. You don't care about any of the data on it. You just yank it and replace it or reimage it, whatever. But either way, I mean, you're not like, oh, well, let me figure out what went wrong with the file system or particularly care much about it. Because again, these are, you know, thousands of identical boxes in pools. These are not data repositories. Get back to me when Facebook's databases are on butter.
0: So this is not their DBs or their image files and video files or whatever. This is literally just serving the web page. It's
2: app servers. Yeah. Right. Now, with that said, Facebook is a big company and they have been trying to integrate Butter uh, more and more for a long time, in part because they, they actually employ Chris Mason, the founding developer of Butter. I know that they have... Moved it further in the stack than it was a few years ago. Uh, If anybody is listening who works at Facebook that knows exactly how they're using Butter and the thing we missed, you know, feel free to email in and let us know. Yeah, show at 2.5admins.com. When you look at all these vendors that are deploying Butter... That is, you know, the, the first line of defense for the Butter fan being like, this is fine because these big companies are doing it. They're all doing it in a way that avoid all these pitfalls. Synology and Netgear deploy Butter, yes, but they don't let it manage all the disks. They sit atop at a, <laughs> a conventional RAID array. They also don't let you manage the Butter snapshots directly from the command line. They give you a GUI with lots and lots of guardrails on it. I don't want to spoil my own upcoming article too much, but you can basically put a snapshot of a butter sub volume anywhere you want to on that entire butter volume. Let's say that you've got butter sub volumes one, two, three, and four, and you take a snapshot on four. You can put that beneath one if you want, and it's not trivial to figure out what it belongs to. It's nuts. The part I found most nuts was reading about, and you're creating the thing and the pool itself doesn't actually have a name. Correct. There is no actual device name for a butter array. Um, you don't really have a way to refer to it as its own thing. Now, I already I can you know I can hear the butter fans getting angry at me saying that. Yes, there is such a thing as a UID, a UUID, universally unique identifier for that array, but you can't actually directly use that to refer to the array. That same UID is stored on all of the disks in the array. And at boot time, UDEV populates dev disk by UID with a symlink that goes you know, from that UID to one random disk out of the array. So ultimately what you're doing, no matter what, is you're mounting or referring to this array by some random individual device node in it. That's the only way you can refer to it. I can see why they wanted to try to keep the Normal convention, but... What normal convention? What normal convention did they keep? MDRAID doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, you've got a single device name for an MDRAID. you got got md 0 If you're doing hardware conventional RAID, uh, you've got even more separation because you've typically got to manage that directly from an application that treats it as entirely differently from the disks. And in fact, in a lot of cases, the individual disks aren't passed down to the operating system as devices at all. The only device you have is the array.
1: Right, because you don't want the OS
2: trying to open the individual drives. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that I I keep getting here. Like, I, I understand folks who really enjoy Butter thinking, like, oh, this is just, you know, another all crusty ZFS guy says ZFS is better and Butter sucks and blah, blah, blah. But these issues that I have with Butter are not issues compared to ZFS. They're issues compared with literally every other storage stack I have ever encountered in 30 working years as a system administrator.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com 25 admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the Accountability Coaching Service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalised learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free 7-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to two dot five admins dot com slash support. And remember, for five dollars or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert free RSS feed. So William writes, I'm planning a new NAS for my parents. They need additional storage now that they're working from home more. The nurse will also need to run Plex for home movies and ad-blocking DNS to produce support calls. My primary goal is to minimise power usage and secondary is to maximise reliability. Right now I think my best option is a Rock Pro 64 with 4GB of RAM and two Western Digital RED Plus 8TB discs. The Rock Pro 64 would run Armbian and serve data using Samba off a ZFS mirror off the discs. My research puts this at 30 watts under maximum load. Do you foresee problems with this build? FreeBSD also appears to support the Rock Pro 64's SoC. Would you recommend FreeBSD over Armbian? I hesitate to use FreeBSD because even though DKMS is finicky on Linux, FreeBSD version updates require several more commands that must be done the right number of times in the right order.
1: So I think the Rock Pro 64 is okay. I would just make sure you're connecting the drives file like SATA using the the PCIe port or the adapter or whatever, not hard drives over USB, then I think, yeah, this is a a decent small NAS with well-supported hardware. FreeBSD, you know, if you're used to it and comfortable with it, then it's a great choice. But, you know, if you're more familiar with Linux, then, you know, especially if this is going at your parents' house where you're going to have to support it, you just want the thing that's going to cause you the least amount of headaches. But you
0: two have been generally down on using ARM boards as NASes in the past.
1: Well, is there anything that where the storage has to be connected with USB is just right out of my book.
2: Exactly. And it's just too hard to find ARM stuff, you know, with proper connectivity. When you can find ARM hardware with proper SATA ports, then you still have a problem. But now your problem isn't necessarily so much just, you know, sheer hardware grunt. It's just that the ARM hardware ecosystem is not... Really designed for everybody to be running the same software on all the devices to the degree that x86 is, and there's usually a lot more, you know, holding your mouth just right to get the software and the operating system that you want on the particular ARM hardware that you want, and you not have any extra little niggling headaches along the way.
1: So ARM has a a program called SBSA or something like that, the the ARM Server Ready certification or whatever, that's specifically designed around solving these problems of having just a bunch of different hardware that's drop-in replaceable. It boots UEFI instead of using U-boot or some custom bootloader. And it has all the basic features and it makes a really nice x86 replacement. But these are all for server class hardware. So you're thinking like rack mountable things with loud fans and the opposite of what people are trying to do when they're building these small home NASAs. I've been playing with a 160-core ARM server that's a great drop-in replacement with none of these headaches, but obviously totally overkill for running a Plex at your parents' house in a 30-watt power budget. Well, Minas is
0: a Celeron, I think, a J1800, which is originally a media center board that's really old and really underpowered, but it doesn't use much juice to actually run it. It's passively cooled, totally silent, apart from the disks. And maybe that might be a better way to go if performance isn't really that important to you.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. There's tons of J1900 systems out there that you can get bare bones for very cheap, fanless, very low power draw, and the entire ecosystem is just in a much more mature state for little itty-bitty x86 boxes than it is for little bitty ARM boxes.
0: Yeah, you can just... Install regular Ubuntu or regular whatever you want. It's just an x86 box. It's underpowered, but that's the only issue you're going to have, really.
1: Yeah, basically get something that has real SATA ports and a reasonable power supply. And it should be great as it is.
2: And for an awful lot of tasks that uh, something like a J1900 Celeron is not in fact, underpowered. I've got a janey 1900 Celeron that's actually operating as my Cody TV box right now, and it drives 4K video just fine. No hiccups. You don't have to transcode video to feed it. It accepts, you know, whatever you want to play over the network on it, and everything just works. There's no noise. It, it, it's great. Yeah, I, my Media Center box is a, an Intel NUC from like the Ivy Bridge era,
1: like really old at this point.
2: Yeah, my last one before that was a, an old dual-core Atom, and um, when it got to the point that uh, some of my 4K videos, you know, were, were getting seconds per frame instead of frames per second, and I was like, oh, crap, I have forgotten I downloaded the 4K instead of the 1080p. I was like, ah, th- this sucks. I need to update this, and so I went and, like, dug an ancient router box off the shelf it had formerly been a, a router for a small business, a J1900. So it's it's a little ridiculous in that, you know, you might wonder why there's eight network ports on my <laughs> media player, but it's fanless. It's perfectly powerful enough. It drives 4K, you know, just great to my 65-inch TV. You know, life's good.
1: Yeah, Mine was the same story, except for my previous media center was a Pentium D. So it was like two Pentium 4s welded together in a weird way. It had hyper-threading or whatever, but it was just... JB welded together, maybe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, my dad found it by the dumpster at work. Nice.
0: Nice. The thing with these fanless x86 machines is that it could be doubled up as well. It could be a media box as well as a network storage box at the same time,
1: if you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it can literally be the HDMI cable goes into the TV and the the media files are on the box, not necessarily on and as somewhere else in the house. Yeah, and you can also have Samba on it for other devices. Yeah, and if, if it's just going to be, I need something for my parents, that's a, a great solution rather than having to have two separate boxes. And, you know, if it's got enough storage, it's, it's also your remote backup target or whatever too, right?
0: Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington.
2: I cannot be found. And I'm at Alan Jude.
0: (laughs) See you next week.